respond to two talks. Uh, uh, the second talk is going to look at HCV, and as we focus more, more on HCV and BC and the more uh, drugs coming around that are likely to be diagnosed, that will be an important talk. Before that, Joe Eron from UNC, who's really one of the national experts on drug development on uh, trial design and trial analysis, is going to talk to us about a very important issue given the new drugs that Tripp is talking about. We have new drugs, the question is how to use them, when to use them. So, Joe, uh, we appreciate your coming out from uh, uh, North Carolina to tell us uh, your perspective on this. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here and uh, to speak to all of you. Um, it's to be in, in Washington. So I'm going to talk about um, what to start. I just want to remind you about when to start um, and the fact that the BHHS uh, guidelines have changed. And, and um, uh, I can't point to those slides, but, but I think we now know that the BHHS guidelines suggest that even patients above CD4 uh, cells should be started on intermediate therapy. This should be to the recommendation of moderates. The evidence is um, predominantly either expert opinion or observational trials. And this is actually very similar to what ASUSA actually said uh, two years ago, that you really had to think about a reason not to start. Um, and I know Mike uh, and Treesman later today will um, uh, maybe go through a case or two of the events of issue. But my job today is to focus on what um, to start. And right now, there are a lot of choices, and there are going to be a lot of factors that influence um, what you decide to do. Um, I think we have the advantage here in the U.S. and um, Western Europe and, and, uh, uh, that we can really tailor our therapy to the patients. Certainly, we could do one-size-fits-all and then see how patients follow up. We do have an advantage to try to tailor the therapy um, to our specific patients. Um, I think most of us believe that if we do that, um, we're more likely to be successful. And if we can take into account the patient's preferences, you know, what fits into their life, what can they um, do in their life to make sure that they can adhere to the therapy how can we make that uh, work for them? We also need to assess our patients' adherence potential. Some of the therapies I'm going to talk to you about have a lower threshold, a lower barrier to resistance. That doesn't mean that necessarily a therapy that isn't outstanding, but it is something you have to take into account. And then we should be able to anticipate side effects. Lots of us I saw on the slides in the beginning are very experienced. Know what the side effects are. We could learn what our patients will and won't tolerate. Some patients will tolerate certain side effects just fine. Others you know, refuse to have a certain side effect. And of course, more and more our patients have comorbidities. Um, we also have to take into account related conditions. How low is their CD4? How high is their bottom load? Um, do they have AIDS defining illnesses that we have to take into account? And then finally, and, and we have a lot of talk about 
this Hungarian and then later Lee Flexner. We really have to think about some of the reactions, especially in having kind of seen the
is below 17,000. Um, so you can look at that, uh, 390. Um, the appropriate choice may have been a pretty good choice for that patient. On the other hand, uh, she had had a viral load of 390,000 and a CD4 of 17. The history, too, is that there's a consequence of the viral failure. So this is a resistance analysis that's not published. Thank you. 
That second study that you mentioned. Again, this is a head to head of Alexander at the time, with with God. Again, I'm just going to show you this forest plot. This forest plot really lines up. You can see again, um, favoring the plot slightly, but with an unfair result. Kind of pretty much all the way through, um, the, the uh, effect is about the same. So they're very similar. I think that's because the side effects these two. For women, there's this huge confidence level because there were so few women. There was actually, I think, less than 10% women in the first But again, um, you can see across uh, most of the parameters, high and low level load, high and low seat for um, these two things very much. I do want to remind you, and I know Trent did too, but I think this is really This is another example of movement PI regimen. That is in a group Thank you. 
studies are really mentioned. Um, again, into the broad studies, the mutations have to have a preference greater than seven. So less than 70 is excluded uh, from the study, part because nobody really knew what this effect was going to be and how it was. So remember that. I don't think this is a big deal. Maybe you'll have some questions about it, but um, it's certainly something that you should be aware of. And again, it just has to do with this blockage of this uh, uh, transporter in the tubule for the cyst that blocks this transporter. Turns out, I think, somebody mentioned Valutegravir this morning. Valutegravir has a very similar effect. The Valutegravir blocks uh, this transporter here. So both the cyst that blocks here and Valutegravir here. But they have about the same effect of pushing from one to point one five degrees. Okay, so now we have another case. JJ is a 45-year-old man who presents with advanced HIV. He has cystis pneumonia, disease with the stomach line, his heart is almost 400,000. Uh, he wants to be treated, but he kind of lives in open housing with his cousin. He's been sleeping on the couch. He's got a bowel pectinotype. He's stable after two weeks of sulfur-tuberty for his cystis. His creatinine is 1.3. His BDFI is 68. He's got that B DNA positive. Negative. His AST and ALT is a bit elevated. Um, uh, he's not been treated before. Uh, he can't feel like he can't disclose his HIV diagnosis to his cousin because he's worried about um, his housing. He can hear a little bit worried about his uh, status and ability to kind of uh, navigate the medical system. So there you go. Remember his uh, C625, total of 367,000. Um, which of these Again, probably the same uh, recommended measurements plus every base the quad regimen. And then, of course, we think we'll have to use CPC as a choice for the reason for the effects medically. exact same percentage as the first case. Um, but I think appropriately, um, most people were a little bit anxious about using mobifrin um, in uh, this particular patient because of the extremely high viral load. Um, some people just napping there for a second, because his function purpose was 68, and at least probably the packing insert was going to say you probably shouldn't be that way. Probably okay. Um, and then some of you Interested in, in using a boosted protease in this patient. Um, the people who check the back of their CTC um, should need to rethink the term he's got hepatitis B. Um, so you really, I think, going to pick from, uh, uh, pick from these regimens. You really don't want to use an adaptive based regimen for somebody who has hepatitis uh, uh, B. You want to treat the phenomenon of CTC if at all possible. And I think the very high viral load excludes from every you can argue with me about uh Tegavir and how you should it. I think that the thing about this patient who pushed me and this was my opinion towards a boosted protease inhibitor is that whole resistance thing. I'm a little bit worried that he might not come back, I'm a little bit worried that he's got an unstable home situation. Maybe he's got an 
effective study that was done in Switzerland, uh, and they were able to look at patients who had transmitted drug resistance and got the therapy where one of the drugs actually wasn't active, and they um, uh, people had transmitted drug resistance from all of the drugs were active, and then people who didn't have transmitted drug resistance. And as you might expect, the people who had transmitted drug resistance who got a drug that wasn't active uh, didn't do as well. This is the deadline here. Whereas the other people did similarly. If you have transmitted drug resistance but not to be active drugs, you seem to be okay. Of course, if, if you have, you didn't have transmitted drug resistance, you'd be okay. I think what's interesting is, is this particular graph, and I just want to point out, so if you had transmitted drug resistance, no transmitted drug resistance, here's the question. So it's one on one. Um, if you had NRCI-based therapy um, and um, you had transmitted drug resistance the drugs were sensitive, at least the genotype said they were sensitive, um, there was still some increased risk of biologic therapy. It wasn't quite significant, but it was certainly off the line. And then, of course, if you had transmitted drug resistance and one of the drugs was inactive, um, you didn't do as well. On the other hand, if you got a boost with protease, which I guess all of you guys know here, um, and you had transmitted drug resistance and um, uh, all the drugs were active, and you included a boost of Obviously, it did just as well as the boost of the transmitted drug resistance. So I tend to favor the boost of protease inhibitor if there's transmitted drug resistance, provided it's not transmitted immunity resistance or transmitted um, So I'm supposed to sum up, so I'm summing up. Um, I think for the treatment naive patients, I think um, virtually all the patients should be considered for inhibitors, regardless of CD4, regardless of the load. Obviously, the pentastrophic question is a, is a loaded question. Still don't have complete answers. There's a study called Board Misleading, um, the, the START study, which is a randomized study to try to get at this. Um, once you've considered that you're ready to start patient therapy, you should tailor this data to your patient to gone through these things. Um, disease characteristics, comorbid illnesses, insurance factors, drug drug interactions, um, the risk of side effects, transmitter resistance are all things you have to put in your calculus. So, Jules, I looked at your last slide. Uh, I think it's again, just quite complicated, but yet uh, a lot of issues to consider. I wonder, and I'm on the guidelines plan for the teachers, I wonder if you could have just this book that preferred an alternative. Because preferred implies that this is where you fall to unless you have some really good reason not to. Almost like all of them have strengths and weaknesses. And Very good. 
stable without this question, but then when patients do this, they seem to pick me the other day um, to respond. Um, on the other hand, I think that may be a case where you might uh, go to a second leader, um, and, and at least a non-secondary case, especially if you're getting into secondary to the many years And then the answer of dialysis is an easy thing, given the um, Anything about switching? So you start with one regiment, switch to another, uh, say the father is something else. Yeah, I, I think as a general principle, the person is suppressed, especially suppressed when we talk about it. I think most switches to a preferred or alternative regiment are probably feasible. And I can't go through all of this, but if someone's been suppressed for a long period of time, um, I would worry as much about those little PK things that you don't know. On the other hand, if someone is on their way down and they need to switch, then I think that we touch the point of control. And that's a situation where even if you want to go from a primary state to a different place, you might transition to a use of PI in order to do that. A couple of cases, uh, the examples come back to you. Uh, so this is a JJ, a homeless guy who uh, needs support services, but he's uh, pretty well housed now, gainfully employed parents. What sort of humans assessment should clinicians use first before they start the therapy and then after the therapy? Yeah, I am always um, surprised at my inability to get through some of the therapies. Certainly, I think one of the best assessments is are they taking some other medicine? Can you demonstrate that they're here for that? So, hypertension, if they're in control, if they're hyperglycemic, if they're controlled, they really They go on to use, I always ask the patients to bring the bottles in, and, and sometimes, you know, there's the loaves and the fishes, and those you study the New Testament, and they might get up and that, but, you know, you look at the bottle, and there's like 25 pills that was filled like, you know, a month and a half ago, and you say, well, wait a second, how did all these pills get there? And they say, well, you know, it's because of the diet, because of the problem that these people. Also, I think calling the pharmacy is really helpful. I, I do that all the time. How often has the patient gone to get the refills? Have they gotten them on time? Have they turned up to the This was for Adam Wheel's bar mitzvah, so <laughs> just carry it with me just by chance. I think it was a bar mitzvah when you get the load of the I think so. I think that's true. In the case of a 25-year-old college, college student, uh, concerned about using a father in a patient who could get pregnant? Yeah, I think pregnancy, you know, our guidelines are very cautious about it. Actually, I think a little bit more on the limb is that basically a father is it's okay. Right? So forget about it. Forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think in a society where there are disproportionate lawyers and patients that are in the I think it's a, if, if, if someone's pregnancy intention is either they want to get pregnant or they're very equivocal. So just to defend the British a little bit is what they're basing this on is actually some sound principles. Number one, there were only 
six cases of level two defects in a children court record on the father. So that was sort of a puzzle of cases. But when you see information about whether or not folate was used, which is a high predictor of that type of defect, they had no information. Number two, they've had a registry going on ever since then, and no further problems have been seen for the most part. And I think all of us have had my practice and a lot of them have a lot of doctors who get pregnant. By the time you discover that you're pregnant, it won't be out of six weeks. A lot of times we're just going to go to closes, and so the folks who get defects aren't really being seen. They're kind of using that as a uh, as an indirect uh, metric and they think it was an overreaction uh, to, to call that. On the other hand, as Joe said, there are those volumes that happen to happen, and you're one of those physicians prescribing this or maybe being fine with it. Any considerations about the last question I have here is any consideration about like the history, either causes of it, and then if it happens, is there anything you can do about it? Now, let me be precise. This is this is lipoatrophy in the periphery with or without lipoatrophy in the visceral fat. because it used to be slippers that he wasted. 